Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Concerns over housing Ukrainian refugees in tents at the Electric Picnic Festival site. We report from Strad Valley. We can't accommodate the people that we have in, at the moment, the number of people and refugees that are coming in at the moment. How are we going to accommodate much more? And we will bring the community with us. When people came from Ukraine first, we were inundated with support. The community embraced everything. So, you know, I can see that will happen here in as much as we can for the short period of time people will be here. Plans to reduce some speed limits on our roads after the recent spike in road deaths, we discuss. And another stark UN warning about climate breakdown as Bulgaria, Greece and Turkey are hit by deadly floods in another rare weather event. But is anybody listening? Around 100 local residents in Strad Valley in County Leash have held a meeting about housing hundreds of Ukrainian refugees in tents on the estate of the electric picnic site at Strad Valley Hall. A group of 25 women and children were the first to arrive to tents on the site yesterday. In a moment, we'll discuss the issues around this. But first, Kira Doherty has this report for us from Strad Valley. In Strad Valley today, the final traces of last weekend's electric picnic were being removed, but there is one element that will remain, the 240 yurts from the festival that will be used to house up to 750 Ukrainian refugees. A last-minute public meeting last night led to heated exchange between some locals and the owner of Strad Valley Estate. Local independent councillor Ashley Moran was at the meeting and that legitimate concerns were raised by some residents. At 6.30 on Friday evening, I got an email from Leash County Council to, to say, that there were 750 refugees coming into uh, Stradbally um, and that was the first I had heard of it and I spoke with a couple of people and nobody had heard about it at all. Ashing, your local councillor, you attended the meeting last night and you raised concerns. What were they? People wanted to be involved. People wanted to be told what was going on. Like there are 1,404 people living in, in Stradbally at the moment under the 2022 census. There would be 53% more people living here as of this week, you know, and we have one guard, um, I think just one one or two uh, fire brigades, you know, we're, we're upgrading the fire brigades to get an ambulance, to get Gardaí, you know, and now we have a 50% extra in the town. Karen McHugh from Leash Integration Network was also in attendance. Well, I think I will have to say it was, it was a bit chaotic. Um, now I say that with the best intention in the world because it was a meeting called at short notice. Um, but when I say chaotic, I mean, you know, there was no uh, agenda, there was no speakers lined up, there was no microphone. And from your point of view, Karen, what were some of the mistruths that you heard last night? That it's all men that are coming. Um, that, what about all the paedophiles? Have to be all vetted? Um, that's probably, they were the kind of, you know, the ones that go around the country. So there are not any I haven't heard before. Thomas Crosby is the owner of Stradbally Estate, which houses the yurts. He describes the facility. 
It's really a very large glamping um, tent site, campsite. Um, there's there's lines of lines of um, sort of white yurts, and um, then there's all the facilities you've got. Obviously, loos, showers, laundry, um, medical, uh, and catering. Describe then these tents for me. Are they suitable for these families? Yeah, these are not the pop-up tents that we <laughs> that are controversial um, at the moment. Um, you know, they're, they're proper canvas tents that are you know properly waterproof, and um, you know each, each tent have a heater in it as well and electrical points for you know for charging phones and the likes of that. Do you expect it to reach close to capacity? Uh, look, the goalposts keep changing, right? The department goalposts keep changing. Our goalposts keep changing. We will respond to whatever is required. So one of the reports in the paper is that it would reach capacity by tomorrow. Is that true? Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. I don't know which paper that was in, but they didn't, I mean, that information did not come from us. It did not come from the department. There are 27 people on site at the moment. There are 40-something arriving today on a bus and similar number the next day. So in my calculation, that doesn't get anywhere near to the 750. Councillor Morn says the yurts are not suitable and that it's time for the government to rethink its refugee policy. When is it going to end? What are, like, how low are we going to go? How low are we going to go? Bringing people in from a war-torn country and putting them into tents in the middle of a field going into the winter months. If this was two weeks ago, we had flooding, we had rain, wind. I lit the fire in my sitting room. We can't accommodate the people that we have in, at the moment, the number of people and refugees that are coming in at the moment. How are we going to accommodate much more? Like, we need to stop and say, lads, we can't accommodate people anymore. We, we're, we're full. You know, we can't accommodate them. And then, you know, if, if situation changes, bring in more. But at the moment, we can't. We're full. We are putting them in tents in Stradbury after a festival. The Department of Integration, Ashley, say this is a six-week contract for six weeks only. Do you believe that? I just find it difficult to believe them. I. Uh, you know, uh, looking back on what's been going on over the last couple of years, it's very hard to believe what they're saying. Um, I hope I'm wrong and I hope it is for six weeks, but who knows. Thomas Crosby is adamant that the contract is for six weeks only and that there has been no discussions beyond that. It's, it's the department's responsibility to find accommodation for them after the six weeks, right? So that's a question you have to ask the department. I personally will not throw people out of the side of the street, okay? But, at the same token, you know, we have made an arrangement for six weeks, starting on Monday and finishing six weeks later. A further public meeting is planned for next week. In the meantime, Karen McHugh said the focus should be on welcoming those who have arrived. And we will bring the community with us. When people came from Ukraine first, we were inundated with support. The community embraced everything. So, you know, I can see that will happen here in as much as we can for the short period of time people will be here. I think there's more goodwill than there is um, anger, because I think some of the anger might be misdirected anger around all sorts of other issues. We know, you know, the concerns people have around housing, around health, around education. Uh, and sometimes, I suppose, the, the anger is misdirected when it has nothing to do with someone from Ukraine, that we have challenges in our systems. It it's, needs to be directed elsewhere. Well, to discuss this, I'm joined now by Independent TD Michael Healy-Ray, Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor at Independent.ie, and Emma Lane Spallen, National Coordinator for Ukraine Civil Society Forum. We did reach out to government parties for a spokesperson, but none was available to us tonight. Um, let's talk about this. Emma, your reaction to housing up to 750 people 
at fields at Strad Valley. You saw the images there. The tents are already set up. Essentially, it looks like a tented village. Is it appropriate or at least uh, necessary given the current pressures on the accommodation here? I suppose there's... I suppose we have to say we have to thank the, the community in Strad Valley for stepping up and being hospitable and doing that job because that's where we are now. That's the emergency we're in now. Is it acceptable? Absolutely not. Tents are not acceptable. And I think the fact that the Department of Children was, you know, has considered and has put children into tents when they know the impact of that on a child, it creates more trauma mm. on children who are already traumatised who didn't want to come to Ireland, they didn't want to leave their homes, and they are now here because, and you've seen all the bombs that have happened today and the, the, the killings in the market. I mean, this war is brutal and civilians are being um, uh, targeted, right? So parents have to get their kids out. They're ending up in tents and the long term is not great. Let's, let's talk about that, the impact of putting children in tents, because I think the department has said to date it's mostly been children and women that have come from Ukraine. Does it cause, or to what extent does it cause, a level of additional trauma on those arriving here? Well, I heard from someone today who had experienced homelessness as a child, and she was saying that even now, as an adult, that trauma still influences her entire life and that of her family. So we cannot, uh, we cannot put a cost on, on what that trauma is. And so, yes, we're intense now, but that is a symptom of a failure of the government to actually plan for the medium term. And to me, that's where we have to focus. Not on the tense of where we have a problem now, because we'll deal with that. But why do we, are we here again? And how do we get out of this crisis? Uh, Michael Healy-Ray, from your perspective, are, are tents suitable in this situation? That we, we hear that the government has to act at, at pace with this. And um, there are, you know, hundreds of people arriving every week <clears throat> seeking accommodation. Well, is I this suppose, appropriate? Well, the first thing we have to say is tonight, it's 24 degrees outside in the streets of Dublin tonight. In a couple of weeks' time, what's it going to be like? And the one thing that I welcome is the fact that the department have said this is a short-term measure, it's for six weeks and no longer. That has to be the case because I would be very fearful for what it's going to be like after six weeks. And being in a tent in Ireland in six weeks' time, well, after that, the, the days, the nights will be getting shorter, it'll be getting colder, and it's not appropriate. Of course it's not. Mm -hmm. But I accept what the department say when they say that they have nowhere else and they, they have to do this, and we just have to accept them at their word. And I, and well, I do we have that. Heard, we have heard calls, and I think Emma's pointed to it there, that you know there's accommodation that isn't really adequately being looked at, that she's getting you know calls every day about yes. that, the issue of modular housing, that there are other options there. Yes that, you know, more than a year into this, a year and yes. a half now, but we that haven't been pursued. Yes, but we have debated this inside the Dáil and the government have said and the department have said that they're exploring all types of avenues and, again, we can only take them at their word. But the one thing that I would say, in Ireland, accommodating people in tents, it has to be for a sh very short length of time because the one thing that we have to remember when we're talking about accommodation, we're talking about human beings and we have to always remember that. And whether people are from the Ukraine or wherever they're from, any person, mm. and whether it's an Irish homeless person tonight yeah. who's on the side of the street or has to sleep in a tent because we have Irish people sleeping in tents as well, that's not appropriate living. It's not appropriate accommodation. In the world we're living in today, no one under any circumstances. So I would welcome that it would be a very short 
term okay. fix. But, you know, Hugh, I'll get you in on this. Um, like, what's the department been saying about this decision? Because it seems like one that's went pretty much under the radar. Yeah. We had Electric Picnic Fe Festival, it mm. just wrapped up, and suddenly word emerges that, you know, 750 people are going to be housed at a place where there was a music festival. That most people, let's be honest, they were there for, what, two, three nights mm. max. Yeah. And now you're looking at those same tents mm. being used for six weeks. Uh, by yeah, people I mean, here. the department's view is, they. I think, they spotted an opportunity here um, and they they recognised that there was an acute shortage of, of actual proper accommodation um, for people coming into the country. So they saw a, an opportunity to get accommodation like this. It's not ideal, obviously, uh, and they've they've gone in, they've negotiated a contract for six weeks um, and it's landed very quickly. I mean, I think mm -hmm. as the report outlined there, there are some people who found out about this on Friday. I think there was a meeting with councillors uh, in the area on, on Monday. Um, so it's all happened very quickly and tonight there are about 50 uh, people there as I understand it um, and the, the department's view is that they won't ever reach that capacity of 750 in the six weeks. But we'll see. Um, you know, we'll see what well, happens. They're really under pressure because of yeah. student accommodation now. But this now is the is other problem. Because students yeah. are back so, in college. So this has happened they're right through pressure. the crisis. I mean, we're, we're nearly two years into it now. And, and it, it, we've had these kind of moments of kind of acute shortages. And, you know, we haven't heard a lot about this on the news agenda uh, over the summer because I would I would hazard a guess, and I'm not yeah. sure exactly, but the student accommodation has been free. But as you said, students are going back in September, October. Uh, so that's going to create another mm. issue, I think. And so the, the pressure is going to be on again to find uh, accommodation solutions. Um, so this is just kind of a, a rolling crisis for the yeah. government. That kind of, re and it's awful to talk about it this way because we are talking about human beings in this yeah. situation. Yeah. But it, it pops up on the news agenda every so often, and mm. then it kind of goes away again, and then it comes up again, and we have this kind of Punch and Judy show in the door where the government are defending their response. The opposition is saying, "Well, you haven't prepared properly." Yeah, and do you and see it on the news agenda as well because of what happened? That you know, the meeting last night that was mm. said to be like fraught and quite fractious. Uh, Emma, over the decision um, to, to house people at the Stroud Valley Estate and the locals feeling left out of that. Do you think that there should have received more information? Do you think there's an onus on government to do more to communicate to people when, when people are being housed in their locality? Absolutely, and I think the government recognises that they need to improve communications. But I actually think this is symptomatic of a much more fundamental problem because, um, you know, the Department of Children have done Trojan work in actually getting people accommodated. You know, probably close on to 80,000 people will have been accommodated by the Department of Children over the last 18 months. Phenomenal. But here we are, 18 months on, and people are stockpiling in hotels and B&Bs around the country, and they're not able to move on. And they're, 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 that's not good for anybody. And, and yet, you have to ask yourself, the Taoiseach wants this to happen. Minister for Housing, I'm sure, would like something to happen. Roderick O'Gorman wants something to happen. Everybody and every civil servant does not want to be responsible for putting children in tents. Nobody wants to make that decision. I'm okay. absolutely certain. Well, if there's certain. so much but of why? a desire for, for this not to happen, how is it happening? That's my question to the system. That's my question because I yeah. do not understand but, what the barrier is within but, government. But that, I, sorry, may I just... Sorry, excuse me. The problem is it's silos. We've got silos and silos and silos. Mm -hmm. and, and we talk whole of government, but fundamentally we're not working as a whole of government. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have crisis like this. We're not able to plan. There, there doesn't seem Briefly. to be... Like, I mean, this, this goes back to, like, why can't the government solve the housing crisis or at least go some way to, to fixing it? And... 
you know, the, you're right, it's that whole of government approach. Now, the government will argue we have this incredible housing for all plan, and this is linked to this, you know, uh, and we, we have this whole of government approach, but it hasn't delivered the results at the pace that is needed to keep up with the right, with the increasing population. Like these, these startling statistics of the numbers mm. of people uh, under 30 still living at home with their parents, yeah. all of that feeds into an accommodation shortage that has massive knock-on effects yes. for students and at the lower end, at the, at the bottom, are people coming into yeah. this country fleeing well, let's, war. Let's talk about that. We heard um, a voice there, Councillor Ashling Moran, who is saying, Michael Healy Ray, that we're at a situation when people are being housed in tents, yes. that we're, we're taking in too many people and it can't continue yes. because the system is broken. Do you agree with her? Well, I, I, I said that very, very early on in the time because we have to be mindful of one fact. Before there was ever a war in the Ukraine, we had a housing crisis in Ireland. We had an accommodation crisis. So it's obvious that with 80 or 90,000 people or whatever the figure is today, that obviously the crisis has been compounded. And of course, yes, it was a blind sight on every one of us because nobody expected this to happen. But you just can't lose sight of the fact that student accommodation was extremely difficult to get before there was okay. ever are you, a Ukrainian. Are you saying? Are you saying we should turn refugees away? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I, I'm not saying that because, from a humanitarian well, what point do, of view, what do we do what, when we have when we see what the government is doing, which is last resort stuff? You know, leaving tents up from a music festival and letting families yes. live in them. Uh, well, that definitely caught us all. You said it yourself. It came out of nowhere. No one of us was expecting that to happen. But what I would be hoping is that it, with the modular housing, with all of the other opportunities, that they will try to address it. But the one thing that we have to try to do is not create competition. Would you and be what, happy then with modular housing for refugees? Can I ask yes. you that? Would you, be happy, would you be happy with that if instead of tents being set up for 750 people in Stroud Valley, if there was modular homes set yes. up? Yes. 750 people in Stroud yes. Valley. Would but that if, be okay? But no, but if we're going to do that, and if we're going to go down the role of modular housing, well, we should have modular housing then for other people as well. In other words, like people on our local authority housing lists. Because the competition is this very important thing. If you have okay. students, say for instance, last year that were in student accommodation, and if they can't get that student accommodation this winter, because, for instance, there's people from the Ukraine there, well, they then are going to be saying that they've okay, been so effectively dehoused. All right. Because so you, it's, if, if you potentially, have to be balanced. Is it potentially a, a divisive situation if Ukrainians Well, we have you know, to get, try and get take mod the divisiveness out of it. Yeah. How, do you, how do you do that, Emma? Well, I think the key thing is a lot of it is about renovations. In fact, you know, someone emailed me, we've got 70,000 vacant homes, we've got 11,000 fair home deals, we've got any number of derelict properties and institutions lining up with communities absolutely desirous to actually turn them into something. They might be housing Ukrainians now, but they could be looking for sheltered accommodation. They could be hostels. There'd be so, you know, this has the potential to be a win-win for communities, but it's not going to happen if we don't actually have an overall plan that takes the scale of the problem and actually unleashes all the creativity and just cuts through the red tape, right? And But it's not about being central down. It's all about working with local communities and the local authority mm. and coming up with the local solutions. Do you think solutions. in this instance that there's been a failing um, when, when, when we see, um, you know, people being housed in tents at Strad Valley and locals asking an awful lot of questions about how this, how this came about and why they weren't informed? Yes. I mean, yeah. it makes absolute sense that people need to be communicated with, but 
the, the problem is more fundamental. Yeah, well, the pressure um, to be on, you know, this sort of six-week deadline, if you like, um, we are heading into the winter. Yeah. How realistic is that? I mean, we had a situation in Clare last year um, th that we had people in tents during very cold yeah. winter months um, in a situation that every government minister said just shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be in. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's a big problem um, and it, it's a difficult one to see, you know, with all the other pressures on, on student accommodation and students coming back and stuff, how the government will, will get on top of this and fix this and make sure that these people... I mean, if the government is kind of saying we're not going to reach, seven, we're not going to reach capacity at this site, uh, the 750 uh, people that it can, it can accommodate, then they kind of seem to be having an air of confidence about mm -hmm. getting these people out of there quickly. Um, but as Michael said earlier, you know, it's very warm tonight. It's very warm for the next few days. But when we get two or three weeks down the line, who knows what kind of weather we could be hit with. And obviously, again, that will put pressure on the government to, to sort it and to make sure that these people aren't living in, in very... I mean, they are living in difficult conditions, but living in like extreme weather conditions as well, you know. OK, um, I just want to just move on to another story um, in, in the headlines today um, to come to uh, Michael on it. We got more details on RTE's finances. Uh, 2.8 million euro deficit for 2022 and news emerging that senior executives actually took a pay increase um, in the form of restoration from a previous cut to the tune of 10%. What do you make of it? Well, what this is going to do is it's going to make it extremely difficult to negotiate the future financing of our team. And uh, that is a real big elephant in the room because we as a nation have to make up our minds. Do we want a national broadcaster or not? I think the obvious answer to that is that yes, we do. Mm -hmm. But if we want it, how are we going to finance it? Mm -hmm. How is it going to be regulated? How is it going to be controlled? And the one thing that I would want to say, and I obviously, I will not use a name because if a person was here, it'd be a different story. But I will word it to you this way. How could any individual, people criticize politicians' mm -hmm. pay but if you can take, no, I'm going to make this point. If you take the Taoiseach and if you take the Tarnister, the two leaders of the country, and if you take their pay, and if you can tell me then how it makes sense for an individual in RT to be getting the same pay as those two gentlemen put together, like, how does that make sense? It makes no sense to me. Mm. And, and I just think things like that have to be looked at. Yeah, how much is this going to impact the, the, the funding, I suppose, that RT are looking for from government? They haven't, I mean, obviously there's no figure there mm. yet. Um, uh, they're also projected to lose 21 million euro in licence-free revenue by the end of the year. Mm. Yeah, well, they're, they're projected to, to lose 21 million, as you say. They've asked for 30, nearly 35 million from the government in interim funding. So you're looking potentially at a package of about 50 million, um, which the government is now interrogating through the new era vehicle, to looking at the, at the figures there. Um, it's difficult to make that argument um, in the context of everything that we've learned over the last three months. Um, the 10% thing is not a good headline for RT, but I think you know you have to look at uh, Pshunya Rahalig, the, the chair, her kind of letter um, that went with the annual report was mm. kind of saying this annual report and if you look through it, it's a very glossy document talking up all of Ortiz's achievements but keep in mind this document was largely produced before all of this broke um, so we have to look at it in that context I suppose that Ortiz is a different beast now um, but certainly it's going to be difficult for them to make the argument that they need 50 million in circumstances where there still seems to be very high pay for executives and that point that Michael is making is a very interesting one 
And it's notable that Kevin Backhurst wanted to get Ryan Tuberty back in a salary of 170,000 euro, a lot of money, but less than the Taoiseach and Atonish yeah. to earn. So that's the benchmark potentially going forward. All right, uh, there we will leave that conversation for now. My thanks to Emma. Uh, Michael and Hugh are staying on. Coming up next is road debts rise. Speed limits are to be slashed. But is this the answer? Stay with us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. TD Michael Healy Ray and journalist Hugh O'Connell are still here with me. I'm also joined by Blake Boland, Head of Communications at the Automobile Association, otherwise known as the AA, and by Leo Ligio from the Irish Road Victims Association. Because reducing speed limits is now part of the strategy to reduce road deaths. And the government made an announcement today that speed limits on many roads are to be reduced under uh, plans currently being developed Leo, I, would just, I just want to get your reaction to this because for you, you would have been lobbying hard, I imagine, on speed limits because of a very personal story Absolutely. for you. Absolutely. I'm in favour for anything that will save lives on the roads. I'm 100% behind. But reducing speed limits alone isn't going to work unless the enforcement is there. Mm -hmm. And there has to be the proper enforcement and the proper penalties, the proper deterrence set in place as well for when they are caught, if they're caught. Tell us what happened your daughter, Marcia. My daughter was crossing a road at a set of pedestrian lights and she was hit by a car and knocked clean out of her runners to the height of the traffic lights. She fought for her life for a week in Tana Hospital, Bowman Hospital, and she lost that battle. And uh, like she was just coming home from a 50th birthday party. Just like that, in the blink of an eye, my whole life, her life gone, our lives all changed. 18 years now it's gone, it's happened and uh, that pain is always there and it always will be there. And it must have come home to you very much again in, in it's recent like days. A it's like a dagger in the heart every time. Every time we hear, we hear someone like that, like I'm not the only one. It's like all our members in the Irish Road Victims Association, we're there representing the families of these victims. We try and give them support and every time something like this happens, it's like I said, it's a dagger in the heart. It's 
and we were doing so well. Mm. We were doing so, so well, and then it's just gone kaput. Yeah, we've certainly seen a trend in the wrong direction. Uh, the government has responded, as people said, they would and imagine they would with, with this plan, talking about reducing speed limits on many roads. What do you think of that plan? Are, are, you, are you happy that it's happening? Uh, it's a first step. Like I said, it's a first step, but there has to be like, it's not going to be a magic bullet. It's not going to stop road deaths straight, straight away. And I'd like to know what the time plan is. How long is this going to take before it comes in? And again, is the enforcement going to be there? The catch the guys that are speeding, mm. like speed kills. Marcy, Marcy, the forensic detective told me Marcy's injuries wouldn't have been caused by a car travelling at the proper speed limit. Do you think there's been political foot dragging on all of this? Because Oops. we have had a working group, we've had lobbying from organisations such as yourself for Absolutely. many years. Anything got to do with road safety just drags along. It drags along all the time. It's left on the back burner until something like this happens and then it's big news again and they come out with something, major announcement and then it takes another couple of years before that takes, comes into effect. Mm. Um, what, what do you make of that, Michael Healy Ray? You heard from Leo there saying, you know, change can't come quickly enough, but it, it's really taken a very long time. Yes, but first of all, when we're having a debate like this, and it's so right that we hear a story like this, because when we talk about accidents, we have the people who, who the families who tragically lose their beloved relatives, and of course, that's the most important thing in all of this debate. But then we have to look at what politics does and what I would call now the knee-jerk reaction of the government because this group have been working away there for a long time and all of a sudden now they come out and they make this announcement and it's all now about speed. And it's a dramatic reduction to go from 100, we'll say, to 80 in many of our roads. P people that do that, I did it this evening. And I, instead of travelling at 90 or 100, when the road, there was nothing in front of me, I purposely went along at 80. And to be honest with you, what, what I can see happening, it's going to lead to frustration in drivers and people are not going to be happy why, with it. Why would you be frustrated I'll, driving, I'll tell driving you why. at 80 kilometres an I, hour? I'll tell you why, because if it's not necessary... Like you're not talking about a motorway now, no, you're talking no, about no, a, a national but, road. But the point is, it's up to people. When you see a speed limit, we, we have roads that say 80, and 30 would be more appropriate. So just because a speed limit is on a road, that's not something, a target that you have to achieve. You have to use your own brain but don't and be, use your but own people common do sense. See, but do people not see it as a target? Are mm. you saying on those windy roads where there's an 80 kilometre no, speed no. limit that what, people do drive at 80 kilometres an hour? They're not driving at 30. What I have asked the government to do, and they failed to do it, and if they did this, it would be looking at all the other aspects of road safety. I've asked them to introduce education at an early age. When children go to secondary school, first, second and third year should all be about theory. In transition year and in the leaving cert, they should be learning about the car, uh, passing the test, they should leave school with their leaving certificate in one hand and their driving license in another. There are other issues, but they're the less glamorous issues about so road you're saying, safety. So don't touch no, the limits. No, no, I know what I'm saying is look at everything, but look at but, cutting hedges on our roads, take the water off of our roads, deal with dangerous junctions. I'm looking for funding, for instance, right everybody now, knows about just, dangerous Just to conditions. clarify, Michael, right yes. now you're saying don't, cut, change, don't change no, the limits. No, I'm saying that's not the answer. And not doing that in its Michael, own, it's not going Michael, to help people. If you cut the hedges tomorrow, how many lives is that going to save? Can you, I, I'll answer that for you, no problem. The danger that is there, we have so many thousands of miles of road where the hedges are growing out, people walking, people on bikes, 
they have to stay out from that. People stay out with their cars why because they, they don't want to scratch they or tear cut? their cars. Why aren't they being cut? Because the government stopped. They, they said to the local authorities that it wasn't the local authorities' job, that it was the landowners. And for instance, if you were a conscientious landowner and you cut yours, and I'm next to you and I don't cut mine, we don't have any uniformity. Why don't you so find them? The local authorities should be doing it. Why aren't they're they not, fined? They're not finding people. If they you should look be at the statistics, them. Leo, they're not doing it. So the answer is the local authorities oh, should be charged with cutting every hedge Michael, in if, their if own area. Hedge, if there's hedges growing out onto the road, like you said, you use your head, you drive to the appropriate speed, you slow down. You slow down to the appropriate speed. As you see the hedges in front of you, slow. if you see a car coming towards you, you stop. And can I, the other aspects that haven't been touched on, the water that's lodged on our roads, right. that's, again, that's, okay. that's again, causing the problem. Again, again you drive at the appropriate De speed. Deer, deer roaming onto our oh, roads, on, nobody's Michael. doing that. That oh, causes on, That has caused deaths in our locality. How many? Oh, and, and a lot more than a lot more than is actually reported. I don't believe that. Well, I'm sorry, I'm again, sorry, Leo, but that is again, a fact. Again, Michael, you say if you're driving on a road 80 kilometres an hour, that should be 100 kilometres an hour. And you're against bringing down the speed limit. I'm saying it's not the well, answer. Well, how are you going to stop your car if you're driving at a speed limit and the deer pops out in front of you? Would you rather hit the deer at 60 kilometres an hour or 100 kilometres an hour? What I'm saying in answer to that, Leo, is we should be looking at everything and they're not. Of they're course. just focusing but now on 30%, 30%, because they want to politically say 30 that... 30% of the people killed on our roads are killed by yes. speedies. All yeah. right. I want to bring um, Blake uh, Boland in from the AA on all of this. One point, actually, that Leo did make was you can bring in new legislation, but it's about enforcing what's already there. Is, is that, I mean, is that, is that the viewpoint from the AA as well, from a driver viewpoint, that we simply have a situation that we have speed limits in place, but there are not enough Gardaí on the roads enforcing it? Yeah, well, we've had close on 130 deaths already this year, 815 very serious injuries last year. And we can trot out statistics like that, but these are mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and so on. And it's really how can you argue with anything that will help cut down on the number of fatalities and serious injuries that are happening on our roads. So you'd be in favour of reducing the limits as envisaged um, under, under proposed plans that we expect it, to see coming before it's government? It's ne next to impossible to argue against, especially with someone you know, sitting beside me like that who's had these experiences and seen this. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have some concerns about how this is going to be put in. It will take some time. In reality, we're not going to see these things until maybe late 2024. We want to make sure that we're targeting the, the real danger spots as well. But we know that the, the proof is there that reducing speeds will save lives and cut down on injuries. When you say targeting the real danger spots, are, are you saying right now that Gardaí aren't positioned in the right places? So, because one of the big bugbears that we keep hearing about is enforcement of the laws that are already in place. It is. And it's very easy to put a speeding ban in in a place where they're let's say it's less likely to have a crash. And we do need to target where these injuries and fatalities are happening. So we're seeing some good indications here and, and we're seeing you know, real action in terms of cutting down on those road, road fatalities. And that's very, very welcome. Uh, Hugh, we've just heard from, from Michael who says, no way, don't want to see it. He's not, he's not the only rural TD saying that. Is there likely no. to be political backlash to these plans? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think Michael's articulating the view of other uh, rural TDs who are on the opposition benches. And even um, my colleague, Senator Maloney, spoke to John McGuinness, the Fianna Fáil TD earlier, who's, who seems to be against it. And I, I imagine some of his party colleagues and some TDs in, in Fine Gael and will be against it as well. Um, 
I mean, Michael's wrong to suggest that it's a knee-jerk reaction. It isn't. This is the work of a, a roads uh, safety group, a strategy it's been working on for two years. Sorry, an examination of the speed limits it's been looking at for the last two years in conjunction with the RSA, the uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, National uh, Transport Authority, Gardaí, local authorities. So this is the result of a, a, a body of work that's gone on for quite some time. Um, and as Blake said, it's probably going to be a long time before it comes into effect. But I, I think it's part of the solution. Um, people driving slower on the roads like is going to save lives. That's the reality, yeah. Michael. You have to even if it is a knee-jerk reaction, isn't it a good place to well, start? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think I don't think there's any doubt that it was announced in the like, and it, it has kind of got out there now in the context of because it's not gone to cabinet mm. yet and won't for another few weeks. But it's been put out there by the government now in response to a, a summer of tragedy on the roads. Um, so I, I, I think it's it's I think it's a good thing, and I think it's part it's part of a suite of measures. It's not the only solution, well, Michael, is the, is but the it's, issue... it's, it, it'll be a part of a series of measures that the government will bring in, including a penalty point, more penalty points for more than one road offence. Um, so, for example, if you're if you're yeah. speeding. Uh, that you'll be hit with penalty points, and if you're speeding on your own mobile phone, you'll be hit with penalty points as well. So, that's all part of the solution. Now, is it's the not issue, just is one the issue here, reaction. and and the the sort of opposition to this is that again, it's sort of government and state deciding how fast you should drive, what you should do, what you're, how you should behave. Is that the issue? No. Well, it's about people missing the point. Into we're talking about safety on our roads. There was a car safety programme which was established by a Michael O'Gorman in Tipperary. It was supported by Deputy Michael Lowry at the time. But that, that programme, which was excellent, it was going to schools and uh, educating people on the safety of a car. And like from an early age, I believe you should really be doing that and letting people know this is a very dangerous piece of machinery. And if the more education you can have but to people be before that... But you could be but you could still but, decide yes, to speed. But the RSA at the time... They dropped the ball completely on that programme. They didn't support it. And the programme, it, it, it disbanded because it wasn't getting support. And if the RSA would look at all of the other issues, as I keep outlining, yeah. and they don't want to do but that. Michael, they want to concentrate a first, a first step. Just, like no, but, you said, it's the first step. There's more to follow. Yes. And look, any... look. I, like can you do, can you, I suppose no, what Leo is saying, yes. can't you do both? Can't you reduce no, but, the limits and also have a strong driver education programme in our schools. But can anybody then not see, if a road is clear, and if, if the weather is good and if your mm. car is good, like the reason why an awful lot of road deaths, people say that, well, it's the different measures over the last number of years had led to a reduction in deaths, but right? No, but just let me finish. One of you the want reasons, to maintain the no, status quo just, of, of people being allowed to drive as fast as they're allowed to drive at the moment. But I think we all agree, and the science shows this, that if you, if you drive slower, you don't harm someone as much as you would if you were driving faster. But, you okay, but, like, that's right, just, just the facts, but just, isn't right, it? But just an answer to that. We have speed bends where we never all had right. them before now. And okay. at the same time, people, were, like, people are reducing their speed. So you are actually arguing against all yourself. Right. If you think about what you were just after saying. Because you were saying that on one hand, we all know now we have speed bends and we have a lot more detection than we ever okay. had before. Okay, we're out of time on this, I'm afraid. But if people drive slower, more lives will be We will have to leave it there for now. But my thanks to Blake and to Leo. Coming up next, the UN warns uh, climate breakdown has begun. Do stay with us.
this summer was the hottest ever, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Meanwhile, the head of the United Nations has warned that climate breakdown has now begun. Well, Hugh and Michael are still here with me. I'm also joined now by Cara Augustenberg from University College Dublin, who's one of the climate academics who scrutinised government progress on this issue. You're welcome to the programme, Cara. Thanks. First to come to that a clear another warning using really strong language again about climate breakdown saying it's not the dog days of summer they're not just barking they're now biting yeah and um, i think anyone who went you know on a on a, on a holiday to spain or, or to france or elsewhere uh italy this summer really really felt okay. that devastating heat absolutely and i think very strong words from antonio gutierrez to reflect very strong and extreme climate situation this summer. So the hottest July on record, the hottest August on record, and not by a little bit, but by a very large margin, lowest extent of sea ice in the Antarctic, the hottest sea temperatures on record, both globally and here in Ireland, the wettest July on record in Ireland. Uh, so we are just seeing records broken everywhere. And I think the concern is we're only just starting an El Nino year, which exacerbates this kind of extreme weather. So we can project that into next summer, it could be even worse given the combination of climate change and also El Nino. Is there anything to be said for, I suppose, that the, the temperatures we're experiencing right now, this could be um, destined to be the hottest September we've had in this country? Yeah, well, we'll have to see how September plays out. But, um, you know, we have to take data as a whole over long-term trends. We can't look at maybe one weekend or, and, and attribute that necessarily to climate change. So it'll take a while to do the attribution studies to, to know that for sure. But certainly the extremities that we saw. And also when I said it was the hottest summer on record, anyone yeah. staying here this summer would say it certainly yeah. wasn't. Well, it was the wettest. The it was the wettest July on record here in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So we definitely saw that. And Met Aaron in July reported that over the last 30 years, rain fall in Ireland has increased by 7%. It's basic physics that for every one degree of warming, the, the atmosphere can hold 7% more water vapor and that water vapor has to fall somewhere. So we saw in Greece yesterday, in parts of Greece, they had more rainfall in one day than we have in Dublin in one year. Uh, devastating. The pictures there um, from Greece, um, and they've really taken a, a pummeling um, weather-wise this year. They, there were wildfires there during the summer and now floodwaters everywhere. It's really quite stark, the pictures yeah. that we're seeing there. So I think at this stage, you know, if you're denying the existence of climate change, then you're simply not looking around at, at what's happening around the world. Are you looking around at what's happening around the world? I, I right am, now. absolutely. And I think that... In are, you, are you worried about it, Michael? I think in Ireland, well, I was never a climate change denier, but what I have always said is we can only do what we can do and what we can afford to do. And if you take, for instance, in Ireland, if we talk about reducing our national herd, what are we going to do? Do the same as we did with the turf? Just mm. stop producing beef ourselves and import it in from Brazil? Okay, just, just so getting back to it and not an issue of affordability. Yes. But how worried are you about what we heard um, from the UN today, about the images we're seeing there of floods, about these chronically high temperatures we've seen right around the world yes. this summer? I always listen to everything I hear like that. And when I hear warning after warning, when I see what's happening, of course we have to take it all in. But at the same time, we can only do what we can only do. I'll give you an example. If you take the tourism capital of the Western world, the great town of Killarney, they've banned, for instance, paper cups, right? No more paper cups in that town. 
That's a great initiative, a local initiative undertaken by themselves. The 40 or 50 businesses, they've come along and they've taken all those out of circulation every day, which is a massive contribution. We should be looking at things like, for instance, plastics. We should not be delivering milk in plastic containers. We should be going back to glass bottles like we had long ago. Okay, it, and, it takes more than that yes, though, doesn't no, it? Yes, but are we going to say so, that we are going to solve everything? What are they doing? We are doing our best. What is the US doing? I'm what is China doing? That, Carol, what is Germany doing? We're, we're doing our best, but yeah. Friends of the Earth has given, and you were a judge, I suppose, in this mm. panel looking at how government's doing on it, gave uh, government a C-plus in climate action. Progress is good, but not enough. Yeah, so this government has about 300 environmental commitments in their program for government. So these are things they said they would do while in government around environmental issues, not just climate, but water quality, nature and biodiversity, air quality, all of those issues. And over the last three years, we've been tracking their progress on each of those commitments. So are they keeping the promises they made to the people of Ireland? And, and what we found is they're making progress in, in over half of their commitments, maybe about 60% of their commitments are, are progressing, uh, but, but they're not progressing fast enough because we think they probably only have another year, year and a half left in government. Uh, and, and we're very concerned at this stage. Are you saying they, they don't care enough? Uh, I think they care more than any previous government in terms of the extent of environmental commitments. We've never seen this level of environmental commitment from any program for government before this. Uh, we certainly saw some good groundwork laid in terms of climate legislation. In their first in their first year, they had legally binding mm. climate targets that they put in place that were very beneficial. But, yeah, so the, the on-paper ideas are relatively okay. good, but the progress on implementation but the public is have to pay for the government's promises. Don't forget that. Q, yeah, the public voted for the government, though. I mean, the, the, the 300 well, commitments Public, were, were as Cara puts it, promises to the people of Ireland that yeah. they would do more. Um, yeah, I mean, look, on, the, on the report front, it's interesting because we, yeah. I, I don't know, I, I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't get the sense that we're getting weekly updates on how we're doing with our, no, with our climate measures. No, we're not. Um, but I mean, Cara's right. Like, this is a very green government, and it's green because the Green Party forced Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. The danger, I think, and the danger for the world in terms of climate is political action. And if you look, for example, in the, you talked about the United States, I mean, the Biden administration is far more green than any Republican administration would be, and particularly the Trump administration. I mean, you only have to look at the federal funding that the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, refused, and Florida was hit by really bad weather last week, for example. Um, so, you know, and you look at the Green Party now and the polls uh, projected to win one seat in the next election, according to one poll. Like this so is it's Michael Healy Ray Rice that people say uh, we just can't afford that a lot of the burden for you know reaching these targets is being placed on the Irish people. Well, it is, but I mean the burden is, is placed on all of us because we're going to be impacted one way or the other. Uh, I mean we're impacted by having the wettest July uh, on record. You know we're going to be impacted by the heat this week in, in lots of adverse ways as well as good ways. But like you know we're all going to be impacted by one way or the other. So are we're we all going to have to pay for it. Are we saying we never had a hot summer before? Of course we had a hot summer before. Yes, but, but you'll what, agree but that the extreme. You'll agree. With, hang on, Michael, come on. No, you will agree no, that, that some of the like extreme weather, there, some of the extreme weather that. events that we've seen, not just here uh, over the last few years, but across continental Europe, you would agree that they how, are a result of climate change. How much more taxes do you think the people of Ireland can pay for? How much more 
our farming community. So we have a lot of revenue right now. We've done very well on corporate tax. So there is money being spent in those issues and and it's not coming necessarily right out of direct payments from taxpayers. But one thing, and Hugh, you said this is a green government. Like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael really have taken on board this whole green agenda and Mm. they seem to be greener now than the Green Party. The question is, is there a green agenda or is it it a climate action agenda? I just want to finish one point because I'm not signing up to. I'm not going to leave another group out yet either because I want to remind people what Sinn Féin said at the time when the government came out with their uh, carbon taxes. What Sinn Féin said at the time was the government aren't going far enough, quick enough. When they realised what the taxes actually meant to the public and when the public started to realise what it was going to mean to them, for instance, uh, when we see the ever-increasing Car- cost of fuel Car- and the burden that's being put on them, it's unbearable. Okay, People we- can only afford the, so I much. I mean, the latest Ipsos poll shows that 90% of the Irish public think the government should prioritise climate change in the next election. So I think the public are speaking and perhaps maybe some of our politicians are out of touch with that. I'm okay. not out of touch with how much people can afford to pay. We have to leave it there. We're running out of time. We are totally out of time, actually. And my thanks to Michael, to Hugh and to Cara and all the rest of the panellists who joined us tonight. That is it from us, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.